Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hey, what's going on, everybody? How are you? Good. My name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. Happy New Year, all the peoples. It is 2019. It is your year. I'm kidding. We're not that kind of church. Um, <laughs> but I will say it's good to see you. I was thinking about New Year stuff, and uh, Andy and I spent New Year's together this year, and just how life has changed. The last time we spent New Year's together was, I don't know, three or four years ago. And it was before any of my friends had kids for the most part. And we did a six-course meal. And a a different course came out each hour that we made together. It was really, really beautiful. This year, we sat around a campfire, put our baby monitors in the middle, and played the game, Whose Kid Is That? When We're Here to Cry. (laughs) Life has changed. It was so good, though. It was really good. And so what I want to do, and we're going to do hopefully every January, as long as I'm here, is when it comes to the new year, new you guys, we think about what we want to be. We did that last week a little bit. We reflected and projected. We reflected on God's faithfulness and projected towards how we're going to see it in the new year. And when we make all these resolutions about your body and about your family and about your work and about everything, I think... Part of that conversation has to be, hey, how am I going to increase or how am I going to get better or how am I going to look more like Jesus in the next year, right? And so what we're going to do each January is take a couple weeks and talk about this idea of spiritual disciplines. What that means before we get scared, because discipline still scares me, what that means is not that we do stuff to make God happy. What that means is that we do habits, we incorporate habits in our life that grow our affection for and our likeness towards Jesus. And that's all they are. And we defined spiritual disciplines last week as this. Spiritual disciplines are the way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing our hearts. And there's a long list of spiritual disciplines, from resting to fasting, from solitude and silence to what we're talking about today and over the next three weeks, prayer. Some are optional. You don't have to fast if you don't want to. That's very scary for very many people, and that's great. Prayer is not an optional one. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. I, this is one of those statements that's either going to make you really relate to me as a pastor or run off and find another church. Um, prayer is, is one of the ones I kind of struggle with a little bit. And not that I don't believe in prayer, I know I'm supposed to, not that in some way I don't think prayer is good or worth my time, but it's hard for me to really say, hey, I'm going to spend a lot of time in prayer because I try really hard to do a lot of other things well. I try hard to be a good husband. I try hard to lead the church well. I try hard to be a good friend and father. I try hard to minister well to people in need. I try really hard to look more like Jesus and to be kind and compassionate and loving and honest. I try really hard, and sometimes I think prayer is good and we need to do it, but I don't give it the time it should. And, and I do that because I see verses like this, and this might just be a me thing, and if that's the case, you're going to listen to me for 40 minutes talk about my tension. Maybe it's a you thing. This is what Jesus says. In Matthew 6, he's talking to some people about prayer. He's kind of going through the do's and don'ts. And he says in Matthew 6, when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans. You know, bottom line up front. He says, they will be, think they're heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. I'm thinking, awesome. Efficiency, you know. 
That's what I love. And sometimes I don't resonate in prayer because I start to pray and I have things to do, you know? And so I love that I can just be driving or sitting and say, God, all the things, you know, we don't have to do this again. Let's save all of our time, you know? And then he says this in Romans 8. It kind of digs into this principle. In Romans 8, he talks about the Holy Spirit's role in prayer. And it says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be expressed with words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads with us, pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. It's a beautiful verse. What that means is sometimes we are so overcome with emotion, happy, mad, sad, glad, that you can't put into words what you want, what you need, what you long for. And in those moments where you can't verbalize what you need, God knows. The Spirit knows, and he intercedes for you. And he goes before God the Father and says, this is it, you know? It means that just because you can't say it doesn't mean God doesn't understand it. So I look at these two verses and kind of the idea that God knows all things, and I say to myself, well, I can just say, God, all the things, you know? Why spend time in prayer if God already knows? Why, why really give it an hour a day or, let's be honest, 15 minutes a day? What's the overall purpose of that? I can do all these other things and try really hard to be better at all these other things because prayer is good and great, but God already knows. So if I get to it, awesome. If I don't, God's still God. He's still good. He still loves me. Let's go about doing our day. Prayer sometimes is difficult to me because I am a type A personality. It's hard. And I always have something else that's pressing to do. So my question today, one of the tensions I want to bring up is, what's the role of prayer in my life, in your life, individually? What does prayer do? Why is it worth our time? Because what happens is we move from prayer being this thing that, that is wholly inefficient sometimes to then when we don't do it enough and we know we're supposed to, it turns into this duty, right? This this action that I have to do because I've been told I have to do that I always feel guilty and shameful about because I don't quite do it enough. It moves from this thing that I'm supposed to do to this duty that I never quite do enough. And for so much of my life, I've heard the message that you just need to pray more, pray more, pray more. And whenever I hear that, all I hear is you're not praying enough, you're not praying enough, you're not praying enough. It's something that's supposed to inspire action instead brings about shame and guilt and all the other feels that we teach to you because fear sells and guilt is easy to motivate people. So when we talk about prayer, I have a hard time with it sometimes. I want to pray more. But I want to just say, God, you know, you know, like I, I, you just know and move on, you know? So my question is, why are we doing this today? My question is, maybe prayer is more, it's more useful than just efficiency. My question is, what does prayer do in the role of people who want to look more like Jesus? Because that's our goal. That's my goal every single day. And so today, as we kind of walk through um, our texts, it's going to be a different kind of day than we've had in the past couple weeks. So we have different weeks at Crossroads where we teach different things. And for the last eight weeks before our Christmas series, we were in eight verses. In four weeks, this is going to be a three-week series. We're going to start a six-week series on the Lord's Prayer in six verses, right? Walking through the text word by word. Today is kind of a big picture day. Today, we're going to bounce around and find some bigger ideas through um, a lot of different texts. We're going, to, we're going to do an overview of a few people's lives, and so we'll put some, some words on the screen. So if you're used to the word-by-word word stuff, we're going to get there again. But this is kind of a let's look at the meta-narrative of prayer and see what it's good for in the Bible. And to do that, I don't know if you guys remember what this is from seventh grade math. Do you guys know, do you remember what the transitive property is? 
right? Kind of. This is Moody Math 101, right? Somebody are looking at me like, I have no idea. Let me explain to you the transitive property because I love it, right? Transitive property simply says A equals B, B equals C, and then if that's true, then A has to equal C. Does that make sense? So if A equals B and B equals C, then A has to equal C. It goes like this. If A, the Dallas Cowboys, are equal a playoff winning team. Let's just throw it out there, okay? Let's pretend like that exists in our world. If the Dallas Cowboys equal a playoff winning team, statement A. Statement B, Charlie likes winners, right? So if the Dallas Cowboys are a playoff winning team and Charlie equals, I'm happy with winners, so happiness equals winners, then I can only go to the assumption that the Dallas Cowboys equal my happiness. Does that make sense? Amen, I heard. We haven't heard that in years. That is... Transitive property 101, and why I bring that up is because that's going to kind of be the structure of our morning. I want to make three statements and tie them together about what prayer is and why we do it, about the role of it in my life and why it's maybe worth more time than I give it because I struggle with that a little bit. But before we get into that, we're going to spend some time praying because it seems like we should do that this morning. Um, And we do it every Sunday here. We have two goals. One is that you know God that we open the scriptures and you see that God is bigger than you can comprehend and you're not scared of that, but that encourages you to follow God more because he's smarter than us. And then we're not going to get to the end of a God that's bigger than we can fathom. That's a beautiful thing. Two is that you experience God because God made us to experience things. Give us a mind, a will, and an emotion. And to divorce those two from each other doesn't do a holistic job of building us towards Jesus as a whole person. And if we just know about God without experiencing God, that knowledge is cold. But if we just experience God emotionally, we don't know about God as we experience him, then that's just shallow and touchy-feely, right, with no depth. So we want both to happen. And what that means today is that as we sit here and talk about prayer, we trust that you don't just know some more information about God, but the Holy Spirit's working in you to bring about change. What that means is that this isn't a spectator sport and that we trust and pray that God is working through the text in your life. And we want to take some time for you to pray silently for that to happen, because that's not my job, you know? And so I'm going to ask, um, as we pray together, that you spend 10 or 15 seconds praying for yourself this morning, and then to pray for me a little bit, that I put my foot in my mouth the least times as possible this morning, all right? So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we are here. I'm thankful for a new year. I'm thankful that you are good, and I'm thankful that we get to worship together. I pray as we spend our time this morning that we do two things that we know and experience you. That we learn about who you are and that we feel your goodness all around us as we sing songs and as we read the scripture. I ask if you're comfortable, just take 10 or 15 seconds and pray that the spirit might speak into your soul this morning as the text comes alive and God is real and near um, in your life. I'd also ask you to pray for me, that God uses my words, his scriptures, to be edifying and encouraging and uplifting and paints the picture of a God who's bigger and greater than us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if we're going to start talking about prayer, I think it's probably a good place to start by defining it. What do you think? So let's talk about prayer for a second. Prayer is a pretty broad concept, and it's not just defined by Christianity. Prayer is something that is innate in the human nature. There's a phrase that I think came out of World War I or two. It, said, it goes something like this. There, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? What that means is that when you're in a foxhole and bombs are going off, you are praying to something. John um, Calvin 
As a theologian, he had something he called the divinitas sanctum. And it's a quote that goes like this. There is within the human mind indeed a natural instinct and awareness of divinity. Karl Barth, who's an atheist, calls this principle the incurable God sickness. This idea that people, whether you want to pray to our God or any other God, we have this innate desire to connect with the divine. One study in 2004 found that nearly 30% of atheists admitted they prayed sometimes. Another study found that 17% of non-believers in God pray regularly, right? So it's this idea when we talk about prayer that one, it's not just beholden to us as Christians. We don't own the market on the idea and the concept of trying to connect with something bigger than ourselves. But we do say that when we pray, we pray to a certain kind of God. We pray to the God of the Bible. And I don't know how you guys were raised, but I think the way that we were raised shapes our views on what prayer is. It shapes our view on how it should be done and the purpose of it. I was thinking through as uh, my experience growing up, and I had a buddy of mine named Aaron. He was my best friend growing up, and I spent many nights over his house before my mom decided that was a bad idea because I snuck out too many times. Um, and, and I remember growing up, I still remember the prayer. His family would gather around the table for every meal. They would hold hands, and they made me hold their hands too. Really awkward. And they said this same prayer together. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. May this food to us be blessed. Amen. Every single meal. And when you ask Aaron to him, that's what prayer is. It's this ritual reciting. It's a routine. And that's not bad. That's what creeds are for us today. But if it stops and ends with routine, I think we've probably missed something. Prayer is more than just the same words that we repeat over and over again to check the box before we can shove food in our mouth. Prayer is deeper than that. It's our divine sense to connect with the divine. And then it's also kind of bigger than the routine, you know? And we have rituals that go with prayer too, right? Every time we pray, without me saying so, I can just say, let us pray, and your eyes are going to close, and your head is going to look towards the ground every single time. I got a confession to make. You might know this. You might not. I, the majority of time, I'm an eyes open prayer, guys. I am. I look straight at your souls, okay? Um, you got to understand, it, is, it has changed a bit. I used to, I've always been an eyes open prayer because I'm a little ADHD and I close my eyes and I'm like, I need to look at things. So I, I've always been an eyes open prayer and, and it changed when I became a pastor. It used to be when I was an eyes open prayer and I would meet somebody else that had their eyes open, we had this common bond like, hey, how you doing? You give a nod and a wink, you know? Now that I'm a pastor, if I catch somebody's eyes during a prayer, I'm like the principal. I'm so sorry, isn't they? You know? I've lost the common man commonality, everybody. Bring it back. Um, but I have an eyes open prayer. We have routine and we have ritual when we pray. We have ritual how we pray. And we have to ask the question, has that defined what prayer is? So for me growing up, prayer was always an action we did with our eyes closed and head bowed. And it started when you did that. That was the green light, right? But the Bible paints a different picture of prayer. It's not one that really starts and stops as much, which is interesting. In Acts chapter 1, you have the community of disciples that just saw Jesus go up into heaven, and they don't know what to do next. And so they gather together, and it says this. It says that they gathered together, and they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul puts it like this. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This idea of praying without ceasing, if your eyes have to be closed and your head has to be bowed, would make it really messy sometimes, you know? I drive in Dallas a lot, and I'm pretty sure we have a lot of prayer warriors on the road, right? I mean, it, people just run into things. I, I think we have to challenge our 
very real assumptions about what prayer is based on where we've come from. Prayer is us connecting to the divine. Prayer is not necessarily a ritual or a routine. Prayer is more than that, though. I, I, I think often when I learned to pray growing up, it was give God your wish list of things you want and don't want, and then tell him you're sorry for all the ways you've messed up, you know? It was like, I don't know if you guys have found this trend yet, but most grocery stores, you can go online and you can click what you want and then you show up and they put it in your car. That was kind of prayer for me a little bit. Like I have my click-through list and I'm like, God, I'm here. Here are the things. Thank you very much in Jesus' name. See you next week, you know? Um, But that's not necessarily what it is either. It's really interesting when Paul prays for people, he prays at most of the beginnings of his epistles. His epistles are letters written to specific churches and specific cities in the New Testament. Because there's usually one church per city, and it's a body of believers that gather together. And he's trying to help them and encourage them and sometimes edify them. And he, he prays for most of his epistles at the beginning in Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians. And in Ephesians, he prays like this. He says in verse 17 of chapter 1, I pray that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him. Since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. I love what he says there when he says the eyes of your heart have been enlightened. What he's praying for is that they might know God more deeply. The eyes of your heart, uh, the heart was the seat of everything in the first century because they didn't know anatomy yet. So the heart was the word they used to sub in. This is your driving force for all of your life, for your mind, will, and emotions. If they didn't know how to describe it, they just said your heart, right? And so when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, uh, that you might know God since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, what he's praying for that they might know God more all the time. Which is really interesting because in all the epistles he writes to, Christians are being persecuted. Christians are losing their lives and their family and their limbs for Jesus. They're hiding out and having prayer meetings. Saul, a guy we're going to talk about in a little bit, is hunting them down and hurting them or killing them. And Paul does not, when he prays for the churches, he does not pray that their circumstances changes. He prays that they might more aptly see God in their everyday, whatever that might be, right? It's a really interesting idea that prayer is bigger than just talking to divine, whatever that might be. It's bigger than routines and rituals. It's also really quite a bit bigger than your circumstances or your wish list for what you want God to do in your life. Prayer, in terms of how we look at it with Paul, is us understanding and knowing more of who God is all the time. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, I'm going to quote a few times today, read it if you haven't. It says this, it says, Uh, Prayer is to have a more vivid sense of the reality of God's presence and of shared life with him. He does not see prayer, this is Paul, as merely a way to get things from God, but as a way to get more of God himself. And really, that's kind of the picture the Bible paints of what prayer is. It says in Psalm 5, in the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. It paints the picture of prayer being this active, continuous relationship as we recognize the presence of God all around us. It it becomes this idea that God will hear us and we will respond and it goes back and forth as we pray more and more. Tim Keller says it like this, prayer is a continuing conversation that God has started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. It paints a picture of a continuous relationship and recognition of God's presence around us. It's beautiful. So my kid is four months old and two weeks, and something started happening recently that I shouldn't like, but I love. She has a stranger danger thing going on now. 
um, where like she will scream bloody murder if somebody else picks her up. And, and I want to not like it. I do, but part of me is like, that's right, you know? Because where we were standing here the other day after a Christmas service, I forget, and my kid was here with my in-laws and my mother-in-law said, she, she doesn't like other men as much, right? So um, we're talking about our kid and she said, yeah, you know, she really loves her father, but she doesn't do well with big men, right? <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> thanks, appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll be working on them 35 tomorrow. Why don't we just pile it on, you know what I mean? Um, and I, I really want to not like that, that she is having a hard time with other, even big men, but I love it. And here's why, is because for the first few months, you don't know if they know who you are. You're just the person there trying to get them to go to sleep and not cry and change diapers. And stranger danger means that she's recognizing and responding to who I am. It's this beautiful picture of how God says prayer should be, that they should recognize and respond to your presence in the moment that changes what they do next, you know? And so when we define prayer this morning, we're going to define it like this. Prayer is inviting in and interacting with God's presence. Prayer is inviting in and interacting with God's presence. This idea that we recognize prayer isn't a routine and it's not simply a ritual, that it is in every way a, continual, a continuous nature of us recognizing the nearness of God and responding because he's here along with us. That's prayer. That's why when Paul says you can pray continually, you can actually be in prayer continually. So this is, this is, this is point A in our math equation Sunday morning, everybody, right? That, that prayer is inviting and interacting with God's presence. So my next question would be this. Um, what does God's presence do? So if prayer is centered around the idea of God being near and God's presence being around us, then what, what does God's presence do? And when I think about God's presence, two people pop into my mind in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there's a guy named Moses, and he meets God in Exodus chapter 3. And if you've been here for any length of time or on staff, you believe that I go to this text way too much, and I just don't care because it's my favorite, all right? So in Exodus chapter 3, you have the story of Moses, and I'm going to read some highlights and put them on the screen for you, but he's tending some sheep in a field where nothing else is around. There's a bush, it's on fire, but it's not being burned up. And we see in verse 5 of chapter 3, God says from the bush, don't approach any closer, take off your sandals from your feet, for uh, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. So Moses does just that, and then God gets to the point of why he's there. He says in verse 10, So now go, and I will send you Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And that's when Moses says, hold on just a second, right? He's in the presence of God. God makes a request, and he hadn't been in the presence of God before. He'd been with some sheep, and he realizes something has changed. And in that moment, God said, this is what I'm going to do. And Moses says, no, about four or five different times. In the first response he has in verse 11, right after God says, I'm going to send you to Egypt and you're going to take my people away from Pharaoh. Moses says in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh or that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses starts where you and I would. He says, there's this big task. And he says, God, I, I can't do this. Have you seen? I am a shepherd. I have a staff. This is all that I am. I am not big enough, great enough, strong enough powerful enough to do anything that you're asking. And God says, yeah, I know in the next couple verses. He says, that's why I'm going with you, buddy. He doesn't say, you got this. You're strong enough. Do some push-ups. I'll see you in Cairo, right? He literally says, yeah, I know you're not. I, I will go with you. And so after he says that, Moses says, okay, well, I got a rebuttal for you saying you'll go with me. In verse 13, Moses said to God, if I go to the Israelites and tell them, 
the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What do I tell him? You know? He's going down this list of reasons why he can't do this. And so he says, one, I'm not big enough. And God says, yeah, that's okay. I'm going to go with you. Two, he says, you're going to go with me. I'm going to get there. They're going to say, he's with you. What's his name? And I'm going to say, he's invisible and I don't know, you know? And so God says, in a really, my favorite text in the Old Testament, he says, this is my name. It's the name they use from then on out for the personal nature of God. He says, I am is with you. I am sent me to you. So he says, I'm going to be with you in that word. And the Hebrew is it's a Hebrew word for breath in a way. And so it's, it's the nearness of the presence of God expressed for the first time in the Old Testament. He says, I'm going to be with you all the time, everywhere you go. And when they ask who is with you, say the God that is near is with you. I am is here. And we see the name Yahweh. It's the personal name for God. And so then Moses doesn't stop there. He said in verse 4, we get down some text, and he says in chapter uh, 4, verse 1, Moses answered again, and if they don't believe me or pay attention to me, but say, the Lord has not appeared to you, what do I do? And so God says, I got you covered. You're going to take that staff. I'm going to give you the best party trick ever. You're going to throw that on the ground. It's going to turn into a snake. Eat the other snakes. Pick it back up, right? And so God is once again checking off his list. And then in verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not an eloquent man, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. He's checking his list off of why he can't do this thing. And God says, fine, take your brother with you. He can speak well. You don't need him, but take your brother with you. And then finally, he gets to the nuts and bolts behind it in verse 13. Moses said, oh my Lord, please send anyone else with whom you wish to send. <laughs> so he went through his entire list of reasons why he can't go. From his personal character, does he doesn't have the ability, does he really doesn't know God's name, which is my favorite. And he says at the end of it, okay, here's the real reason. I don't want to do this. Guess who won that argument? Look at verse 20, if you're following with us. Then Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and headed back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Here's what I love about the presence of God. So if prayer is inviting and interacting with the presence of God, here's what I love about the presence of God. The presence of God reminds us when we forget of God's bigness. It gives us perspective of God in our moments in the everyday. Because sometimes it's really easy to forget when Moses is with some sheep that God is bigger than his circumstances or than what he can imagine. And when we see and sit in the presence of God, we're reminded that God is bigger than my problems. And that's so hard to do in the everyday. I take this swim trip every year with a buddy of mine. We spend two or three days going from place to place in and around, usually the Austin area, trying to find places that have cold water in July. And um, over the last three years, we've hit... I think every one of them. And so we were trying to look for a new place to hit this year. And I had this idea. I really, I really want to be an outdoorsy guy. I really, really want to be an outdoorsy guy. I don't know if I'm good at it yet, uh, but I want to be one. And so I said, hey, what if we did this canoe trip? And he said, what's that? And I said, well, there's this place I found in Bastrop, and it's like a 25-mile canoe trip. We can take a couple days. Um, and he said, okay, that'd be interesting. So we can camp out there, you know. And he said, okay, let's do it. So we go down and we get our canoe and it's raining and the people look at me and they say, are you sure you want to do this? Clearly they recognize I'm not a big man. And I said, I do want to do this. This is going to be great. And they're like, but it's raining. And I said, yeah, but I think it's going to stop anyway. And so we push off and we didn't see anybody else for like two days. And it was amazing. But this is an Austin River. This isn't Colorado. It's just kind of stagnant, you know? 
And so it's really beautiful and it's calm and it's peaceful and there's no noise and our cell phones didn't work and we're just plodding along. Then you love the water and you dive in the water and you love how peaceful the water is. And then we're about six miles in and we see this Jeep and it was, it was a Jeep, uh, I think Wrangler is a four by and it was pretty brand new. It looked pretty brand new, like a couple years old. And it had this big trailer on the back of it. And this thing was, was like face planted into the bank, right? And covered up to all the engine was covered. It was at a steep incline up to probably the drive, halfway up the driver's side door. And so we see it and nobody else is around. It's on this steep embankment. And there's a really heavy trailer behind it. And so we go exploring because that's what we do. We're men, right? And um, we went and tried to figure out what was going on. And it was, it was a beautiful reminder in that moment. They had some pretty heavy rains the week before, really heavy rains. And what happened was the rain rose up the banks of this river and this peaceful river that we knew, we were reminded that isn't always peaceful all the time. We were reminded that although we love being out here and canoeing for six miles, this thing can get pretty dangerous pretty quickly if we don't respect the power of water, you know? I think sometimes we come to God in prayer and we remember that God is good and God is near and God is peaceful and God is loving and God is kind and we sing about it, but we forget when we don't come to God's presence often that God is bigger and sometimes scarier than our problems. That's a good thing. We get too familiar with the niceness of God that we forget that God is bigger, stronger, and a mighty fortress, you know? And so I love what prayer and the perspective that that prayer brings because it invites us into the presence of God. It reminds us that God is in every single way bigger. (laughs) Prayer, when we invite the presence of God into our life, reminds us that God's presence and perspective is bigger than any of my problems because I forget. Moses did, and he checked down the list, and God said, no, I got that covered. One by one by one. The second guy I thought about is a guy named Paul. You know him. He wrote most of the New Testament. Yeah, we quote him quite a bit every week. And if you don't know his transformation story, Paul didn't like Jesus for a long time. Paul's mission in life, his number one love, was to protect Judaism at all costs. And Jesus threatened that. Jesus came in and said, you have a hierarchy of good, and I want to upend that. Good is not necessarily blind obedience to something that you don't know. Good is something different. It is love. I've redefined it. That includes obedience. But if you're not loving and obedient, then you're no longer reflecting God anymore. I'm going to upend your hierarchy. He did that all throughout the New Testament when it came to leading and loving and serving and all the things and power and money and influence. And so naturally, Judaism was threatened by Jesus. And Paul took it on himself to go about round up people that follow Jesus and kill them. Actually, there's a story in Acts 6 and 7 where um, in 8, you have the first martyr in the New Testament. You have the first martyr since Jesus, meaning a guy that was killed for his faith. It's got him Stephen. And before they stoned Stephen to death, the people that were going to do it take their robes off, their outer cloaks, and they lay it at Saul's feet because it shows that he was in charge and said, this is okay. So in Acts chapter 9, Paul, his name was Saul then, encounters the presence of God for the first time. It goes like this. As he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he said, who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. Skip down to the end of the chapter. It says, this is the change in Paul after he found the presence of God. It says, all who heard him were amazed and were saying, is this not the man who in Jerusalem was ravaging those who call on his name? 
and who had come here to bring them as prisoners to the chief priests. But Saul became more and more capable and was causing consternation among the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. It's this idea that fundamentally what the presence of God does is, as one commentator put it, it reorganizes our loves. He loved Judaism, but he found the presence of God and he decided something else was more worthy of his love. It shifts his priorities, if you want to put it another way. That's what happens when we find the presence of God. Because oftentimes when we sit in it, we remember what's really important. Yesterday, we had a memorial service here for a guy named L.J. Scott. And L.J., I don't know him very well. I've heard about him for a long time because he founded this church like 30 years ago. Um, and, and one of the guys that founded this church. And, and it was really great to sit here and see a bunch of people I haven't seen in a while and listen to people talk about him. And, and one of the things that happened that I am blown away by is his son Brandon is a pastor now. He was a missionary we supported for years. He's a pastor now in Oklahoma City. And he, he gave a sermon, like a sermon sermon, like a Charlie-sized sermon, which just means too long. And he, um, he sat up here, and he did a phenomenal job. It was really, really great. Um, and he sat up here, and he gave a sermon at his dad's funeral, which I couldn't do. And, and, and the key driving force through his sermon was that my dad did a really good job of remembering what was really important. And that was the gospel. That's what he said throughout his entire life. He, he wasn't a guy that liked frills. He wasn't a guy that needed frills. He reminded us all what was really important. The guy that hired me here is a guy named Brent McKinney. He lives in Dallas now and he teaches and he's getting his doctorate. And I don't know if you know Brent or not. Brent is not a guy that you'd look at and say, he looks like a pastor. Uh, Brent is a guy that you look at and say, he looks like he should have an escort when he walks around a church. And... And I love Brent. He's got long hair down to here. He's got tattoos everywhere. He's one of my favorite people in the entire world. And we were talking in the back yesterday. And, and we were talking about, you know, how he came. And he, he still is stuck in like the mid-90s in terms of fashion sense, wears Doc Martens and loves it, right? And owns it. And he showed up and he had a jacket on and Doc Martens in a flannel shirt like Nirvana never died. And he, um, <laughs> he, he said, somebody asked him, his wife asked him, hey, are you going to press your suit? And he said, No. And the rest of it's a funeral. He said, yes, LJ's funeral. And what that meant was, it's not a bad idea to wear suits to funerals. I do it all the time. It meant that LJ would be mad if I did some kind of formality because LJ was not about that. He, he was about the gospel, you know? And we sat here for an hour and a half and we encountered the presence of God and it reminded me what's truly important. They reminded me, even though projectors don't work sometimes and my notes aren't here sometimes or I don't hit all my points in my sermon in a way that I want to or something goes terribly wrong. It reminds me what really is important is that we gather together and we say in the presence of God, we're reminded that our love is the gospel and what Jesus did. Not that other stuff. And that's not bad stuff. It's just down on the depth chart. So what we see when we encounter the presence of God, what we're reminded of is the presence of God reorients our perspective of God by reminding us that he's bigger than us and then in every single way it changes out or it reminds us what our first love should be. And so if prayer is inviting in and interacting with the presence of God and the presence of God naturally, here's what it does. Here's what it did for Moses, what it did for Paul, what it does with everybody I've seen in the Old and New Testament and what it does with us. Essentially, the presence of God, when we sit in it, changes us. I don't know of any story in the Bible or any person that I've met that experiences the presence of God and leaves the same person that they came in. I don't know it. You might not stay that way for long. We've all had camp highs before, but you have that high for a little while, you know? 
in my last 30 seconds, in my last 30 days. But the overarching truth in the scriptures is the presence of God brings about change in the people of God, period. And that's kind of what the point is behind the presence of God, is he reminds us of who we're supposed to be, and he reminds us what's really important. And so prayer is inviting and interacting with the presence of God, and the presence of God ultimately changes the people of God. So there's A, there's B, here's C. If A equals B and B equals C, then here's what it is. A equals C, prayer changes people. Prayer changes us. I mean, it's, it's a simple concept that I oftentimes forget. If prayer is about the presence of God and the presence of God changes people, then when we pray, we are changed. That's it. And here's the hard part for me is oftentimes I forget that because I'm an efficiency-based person and I just want to say, God, all the things. There's a really great story. It's a book in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read parts of it because we don't have time to really get into it. But I want to give an overview of it because I think it's really good. It's the story of Job. You guys know who Job is? Job is an Old Testament patriarch and he was rich and he had kids and he had stuff and God took it all away. God took it all away. He had no money anymore. He had no kids anymore. He had no stuff anymore. And then God took away his health. And what Job, what I love about Job is it's a conversation between he and God about why this happened. The whole thing is a conversation about, about what happened and why it happened and Job interacting with the presence of God that went contrary to the presence of his friends in his life. That's another sermon. But he's picking which presence he's going to sit in at that time. And so I just want to read parts of Job and, and really just kind of let the text speak for itself a little bit. So I'm going to read a snippet from chapter 1. It said, Now the day came when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job, saying, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing beside them. And the Sabaeans swooped down and carried them all away. And they killed the servants with the sword. And I, and only I alone, escaped to tell you. While this, while this one was still speaking, another messenger arrived and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants. It consumed them all, and I alone am the only one that escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and carried them all away. And they killed your servants with a sword. And I, and only I, escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another messenger arrived and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in your oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind swept across the wilderness and struck the four corners of their house. And it fell on all the people, and they died. And I, and only I, escaped to tell you. He goes down in chapter 2. It takes away all his stuff and the people he loved. And then he sees his own health go. In chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, it says, So Satan went from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with a malignant ulcer from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Joel took a shard of broken pottery to scrape himself with while he was sitting among the ashes. you got to get the picture here. The only thing Joel has to com- Job has to comfort him are the broken pieces of the stuff he has to scrape his open wounds. That's a terrible place to be. And so naturally, Job does what we would do too. He starts to pray. He starts to pray to God and ask him why. And what I love about the story of Job, and we don't have a ton of time to get into it, is it paints a picture of a process. And so sure, I can get up here and talk about the presence of God changing us and talk about the presence of God changing us like it did Paul and like it did maybe Moses um, and how it happens quickly and fast because we can sit down and read that story in five minutes before bed. But that's oftentimes not how God works. What we left out in the story of Moses was that it wasn't just God appeared in a burning bush. God denied Moses' checklist, and I was like, okay, I'm all on board. What we left out was the 40 years before that that he tended sheep and started to learn who God was in the first place from his father-in-law. 
What we left out after that was the 40 years they wandered in the desert, and Moses' faith went back and forth a little bit, at least three different times when he tested God. What we left out was a slow, progressive change that comes from knowing God's presence and experiencing it. And here's why that matters, because if we don't talk about spiritual disciplines and the art of prayer as a process, then what happens is when we don't see it happening right away, we feel like in some way we failed or God's failed us. And that's just not true. That's just not true. What we don't talk about is the fact that Paul experienced the presence of God and was changed, but then went away for 10 years to make some tents and learn about who God was before it became the Paul that we write in the Christian superhero books, you know? We don't tell the whole story sometimes. Job does. It says, I lost these things. I prayed to God. And we see a slow, methodical change to how he responded to God as he's sitting in and interacting with the presence of God. And it gets to chapter 10 in Job. And this is what Job says to God. I am weary of my life. I will complain without restraint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Tell me why you are contending with me. Is it good for you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? It says in verse 8, that your hands have shaped me and made me, but now you destroy me completely. It's this progression towards, but he sits. He sits in the presence of God. And he asks questions, and he learns, and he grows. And then in chapter 38, God responds to him, because like I said at the beginning, prayer isn't just us giving a wish list to God or us talking to God. It's just inviting and interacting with the presence of God in the world around us. And so God responds to Job, and in one of my favorite bits of the whole book, God says to Job, we just talked about it, he brings perspective to his situation and says, hey Job, I know you're mad, but where were you when I made the world? Tell me where you were. What stoop were you sitting on when I told the waves to stop at this point? Where were you when I made the mountains? Tell me who divided the expanse of the ocean from the ground and the sky and light and darkness. Give me an insight on where you were there. He's having a conversation with God about God's perspective and his. And Job is reminded in that moment where the presence of God does that God's perspective is bigger than our problems. And over the course of the entire book, like I said, this is an overview. Job begins to see God for who he is. And in chapter 40, he says this, then the, Lord answered, then the Lord answered Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let the person who accuses God give him an answer after he puts him in his place. Job answered the Lord, indeed, I'm completely unworthy. How could I repay you? I put my hand over my mouth to silence myself. I have spoken once, but I cannot answer. Twice I will say no more. And then he ends the book in 42, and he kind of reflects, and he talks to God again. And instead of saying why this happened, instead of blaming his friends and family and the sin in his life, instead of getting mad at God, even though it's a process that we go through, he says in 42, verse 2, I know, God, that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? But I have declared without understanding things too wonderful for me to know. It's this beautiful process that prayer, entering into the presence of God, interacting with it, brings about change. That's what I forget. In my desire to be efficient, in my desire to do all things well, I forget that the way, the central way that God changes us is through prayer. Richard Foster writes a book on it and he says to pray is to change. Prayer is a central avenue God uses to transform us. And if I don't pray because I don't have time, I wonder if I'm being transformed. So a buddy of mine named Mike Wagner. I went to Moody with him. And his roommate, when he first got there, I think it was a year in or so, invited him to this prayer meeting. And so he invited me. And 
He said, hey, do you want to go to this prayer meeting? And, and I said, yeah, I mean, wh- when is it? He said, Friday night. I said, Friday night. I said, doesn't God hear us just the same on Mondays? And um, uh, he said, yeah, it's at Friday at 7 o'clock. I said, okay. I said, what time does it start? He said, 7. I said, what time does it end? He said, it ends at midnight. I said, that, the next day, man? That's five hours of prayer. That's like a month and a half, if I'm being honest, you know? And I said, yeah, I'm going to pass. And I passed for a while. This guy went to this prayer meeting for literally three years. It was a missions team, SMF, Student Mission Fellowship prayer meeting. I went a couple times. And I'm going to be honest, the first two or three times I went, I made it about 15 minutes before I started thinking about other things. Just pretended to go along with everybody. I got better and better at it. As you sit in the presence of God, it becomes more and more natural like everything else in life. But I went intermittently off and on, and finally I just said, man, I can't do five hours of prayer. Um, he is my role model in prayer. Why I say that is because Mike Wagner went in as a kid from Minnesota and left with his heart because he prayed for years and years. He left with his heart for the world that I'd never seen before. There's a map in this room that we met on, and they pray for different parts of it. He spent six years as a missionary in Thailand and the Philippines, and he's been in the Netherlands for two years. And actually, our mission team that went there this last summer met up with him and his wife. He's been a missionary ever since. Prayer changes us, reorients our loves, and reminds us of God's bigness because we encounter the presence of God. And here's why I think that's really important. I think it's really important because at the end of the day, I want to grow. I want to follow Jesus better. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be more kind and loving. And I want to minister to this church better. But sometimes in my run to do everything better, I leave out the thing that God says will change us. I leave out where God says is the medium through which I change my people. Pray. We see this in Galatians 2 or 3. Galatians is a book, and this is one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament. I say all the time, this is one of my favorite scriptures. I do like them all. But in Galatians 3, there's this tension between these people that want to follow Jesus in a rules-oriented way, and Paul saying it's not about rules. Rules are fine, but it's really about your relationship with God. And it comes to our head, and in chapter 3, Paul says this. This church, he says, the only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you'd heard? Are you so foolish? Although you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? I love that line. Sometimes I don't have time in my life for prayer because I try and do it on my own and I forget that God changes me through prayer. And this week, as I read and studied and prayed, he reminded me that maybe it's not about efficiency. He reminded me that the way that he changes his people is when we pray. I I love this one quote by J.I. Packer. He says, prayer is finding our way through duty to delight. See, for a long time, I thought prayer was a duty. I had to do it. I should do it. I don't do it enough. I didn't see it as a delight. I didn't see it as the main way through which God changed me, through which God made me a better father, husband, pastor. I didn't see that as a key part of the puzzle that we are changed as we enter into and recognize the presence of God all around us because the presence of God changes us. It's a difference in perspective, but it's a big one because where before my priority was efficiency, now my priority might just be prayer. We have a high school trip to Pine Cove. You heard about the guy that hired me with the long hair and the tattoos. He did this thing that I loved and I took credit for when he left. And um, when we take kids to any kind of ministry camp trip, he, instead of having a rule list, he would have a get-to list, you know? And the kids didn't care. The parents thought it was amazing. Um, and so instead of things like, you know, you have to be in bed by 10 p.m., it said, you get to have a full night's sleep, you know? 
Instead of saying, like, you will not have girls and boys in the same cabin, it said, you get to have your private space away from girls. You know, like those, it was the get-to list, not the rules list. And, and that might look like the same thing when you look at the, the action on the end, but it's completely different when you look at the motivation. I can pray because I feel like it's my duty and I have to and I can begrudge it, or I can pray because I know that's how God is shaping me in the image of Jesus. And they might look the same, but one draws me out of bed in the morning and says, I can't wait to do this. And the other says, I'll do it at the end of the day because I have to. Prayer is the main way through which we are changed. My question, and I know the answer in my life, is I don't pray nearly enough because I don't understand that that's what God uses to make me look more like Jesus. So maybe instead of trying harder, my point is I guess we need to pray harder. So when we talk about prayer, when we talk about our relationship with God, I think it comes down to how we see it as a duty or a delight, you know? I talked to Andy this week about um, whether he saw things as a duty or a delight. And I said, what's something that you saw as a duty and has moved to delight from you? And he looked at me and he said, kids sports, right? I, I said this in the meeting backstage and one of the moms said, be careful. She said, if you say the wrong things, I'll walk out and go to my kid's baseball game. <laughs> I said, awesome. Um, he, said, he said, really, going to my nieces and nephews' football games, he said, it was early and it was cold and I didn't really want to do it ever. He said, but you go there and you see their faces and you see how much fun they're having and you see what it's doing for them. And it turned in from something I had to do to something I wanted to do because I realized what's happening, you know? I guess... My prayer today is that, I don't know where you're at with it, but maybe you need to hear that prayer is not just something we have to do, but if it's the way that God changes us to look more like Jesus, and if that's our goal, then it's something that we don't have to do, but want to do. William Carey's a missionary. He said, prayer, secret, fervent, believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. We're going to talk next week about how prayer changes the world around us, but today is about how it changes us. And I think if you would have asked me at the beginning of the end of the week, I would have said, why pray? One, maybe because I feel like I have to, I know I should. Two, why pray? Because it's the way that I look more like Jesus. And that's what I want to do. So let me pray for you. God, I'm thankful for who you are, and I'm thankful for your presence, and I'm thankful that your presence brings about change in the people of God, and I'm thankful that when we pray, we get to realize and recognize your nearness all around us. So I pray that we become people of prayer. I pray that we become people that pray not because we feel like we have to, but we get to. Might you develop in us a fervency for prayer, because when we do that, we know that the Spirit of God is shaping us into the person of God, that we can reflect the hope of Jesus into our world as fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and pastors and everything else. So be near. Be with us. As we call on you, might your presence be invited into our life as you are changing us into the person of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.